Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So, I just want to start off tonight with a shout out to everyone who voted in the election earlier this week. Uh, I think that while it wasn't a complete and utter success, it was definitely a little bit of a glimmer of hope for this country. And obviously, I am particularly relieved uh, that the hard work of the Yes on 3 campaign uh, was not in vain. And so, yeah, I am definitely feeling a little bit better today than I have been in uh, a while. And uh, again, I'm sorry that I wasn't here last week, but I was doing uh, some pretty hard work and it seems to have paid off. But let's get back now to this work, uh, because this is definitely something that I enjoy doing every week. Now, I wanted to start with a quick update on the Hubble. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that the Hubble had had kind of a hiccup. And so it had a gyroscope that wasn't working and everybody was a little bit panicked because we don't have another space telescope right now and probably won't for quite some time. But Hubble is back on track and is chugging away again and making beautiful pictures of incredible things like it has been for the last uh, several years, many years now. It's been up there for a long time. Uh, So yeah, Hubble is back to observing galaxies and stars, implementing programs that scientists around the world have proposed months ago, said senior project scientist Jennifer Wiseman, who is based at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. And so in recent days, the telescope has monitored the collision of distant galaxies and has studied the flares around distant red dwarfs. So um, basically, they are looking at the solar flares from those stars to see if that would affect any kinds of planets around them, because if uh, big solar flares are hitting your planet, chances are there's not going to be much life there, because solar flares are very bad news. Um, There's a story that I didn't get to read, but apparently some declassified memos from the, I think it was Vietnam War, uh, that solar flare activity actually had detonated a bunch of um, sea torpedoes or or sea bombs. Um, So yeah, they're, they're bad news. Solar flares are not a good thing to have. So it was definitely, uh, it's definitely important to know whether or not they are being affected from uh, red dwarfs. And so, uh, again, astronomers are just really, really rejoicing uh, the return of Hubble. I feel as if a relative has come out of the hospital, says Robert Kirshner of the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics uh, in Cambridge. So yeah, uh, very, very happy, very, very excellent. Um, One of the recent pictures that was taken before the malfunction, but that has just come out, is a, uh, it's being called, you know, the smiley face picture because of gravitational lensing. The uh, galaxies kind of form this smiley face uh, look to them. And so, yeah, everything is back on track. 
Okay. So now I want to move on and talk about something that's kind of been in the news for a while. I feel like I'm a little bit late, but I think that it's important to talk about. Now, it's kind of a weird story. Um, And so you may have heard about this uh, back at the beginning of October. Engineer Sergei Savitsky allegedly attacked welder Oleg Belaguzov at Bellinghausen, uh, which is a Russian research station on King George Island in Antarctica. Now, Belaguzov was evacuated to Chile and uh, is said to be in stable condition, and that's pretty much about what we know. And so the thing that I thought was interesting and uh, really worth talking about this story, even though, you know, pretty much everybody's heard about it, is that that is all we know. And so what has happened is that there has been a lot of embellishment to that story because we only had these very bare facts. And so some Russian news outlets have reported that the two had a longstanding animosity towards one another, uh, having basically been trapped in a uh, box in the middle of a uh, incredibly inhospitable uh, landscape for six months or so. Uh, other outlets have reported that the two barely knew each other and uh, really hadn't had any kind of interactions uh, for the most part. But the really interesting and prevalent rumor, uh, one that many American outlets have picked up on, was the whimsical thought uh, that the victim had been ruining the endings of books that Savitsky was reading, and therefore uh, he basically snapped and uh, and actually stabbed him. Now, one of the other things we probably know is that this is a place where there's little access to the outside world. That much we know. And where it is well known that alcohol is in abundant supply. And so if people are drinking, their inhibitions we know are lowered. And so the real catalyst for the actual action could have been anything. Um, but I just think it's really interesting. And um, it was also kind of interesting to me uh, as a personal note, because I had just rewatched the uh, wonderful movie, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing recently. Um, and so at least no one has yet suggested that there could have been alien creatures involved. So that is very exciting. Um, that makes me very happy. So uh, Savitsky has actually flown back to Russia and is awaiting trial for attempted murder. Um, and so he has been placed under uh, house arrest. And so under international treaties, crimes committed in Antarctica are under the jurisdiction of the perpetrator's home country. And so luckily there wasn't any uh, big issue. He immediately surrendered to the uh, person in charge at the station and then was put on a plane back home. And so, you know, it's really important to just be wary, especially when something seems really satisfying, uh, to check sources. Uh, And so, you know, things like this, especially things that have just happened, People tend to do that. They'll start adding on these little details that sound really convincing and good, but aren't normal, aren't necessarily true at all. And, you know, in this case, it's not a huge problem, but it's a good illustration of how any story can end up with details uh, filled in from really dubious sources. 
Um, so that leads into our next uh, story. So speaking of dubious reporting, uh, some news outlets have been focusing on a casual suggestion by researchers at Harvard to suggest that the strange extrasolar system object, Oumuamua, uh, might have been alien in origins. Now, the researchers did, in fact, publish a paper with some speculation that the object could be a solar-sailed spaceship or propelled by solar radiation. And so, but the thing is, is that this was only one speculation among several others that sought to explain some unusual movement from the object. Now, the object displayed an anomalous acceleration pattern Uh, from that which would have been expected from simple gravitational forces. And we actually were not sure what caused it. Um, And so, therefore, they wrote a paper uh, engaging in some speculation. And so one of the ideas is that it could have been solar radiation pressure. And the extra energy may have been transferred from the sun's electromagnetism. And so this is a fairly reasonable hypothesis, which the researchers simply extended to suggest that this might be a way an alien ship could use such energy from a solar system as passive propulsion. Now, the authors clearly would love to find out that that was true. We would all like to know if there really is, you know, an alien ship out there. Um, But honestly... Uh, Right now, Oumuamua cannot be placed in any kind of category of uh, possible alien uh, construction. And unfortunately, it has left the solar system already, and it's actually really hard for us to see anymore. So uh, we've kind of missed our shot at doing any more uh, exploration of that object. So if it turned out to be aliens... uh, you know, they're not really all that interested in us because they've already left. And so uh, people who are looking for aliens will have to go back to the uh, metaphorical drawing board once again. Okay, so let's move on now to what has become a pretty uh, normal theme around here, uh, just because obviously it is really fascinating. And I think that We definitely always want to know more about uh, the history of our own people. And so modern technology keeps getting better. And so it is transforming our understanding of the history of ancient peoples, and in this case, the ancient Americas. And so I talked about recently another uh, uh, occasion of this where in um, the jungles of... um, the Amazon, they're doing a lot of LIDAR and finding really interesting things. Um, And so this is another example of that. So Izapa, the capital city of a kingdom which flourished between 700 BCE and 100 CE, has actually been well known since the 1940s. Pyramids, plazas, ball courts, and a huge array of stone-carved monuments have been discovered there in the past. But now, with new survey techniques available, researchers have discovered some 40-plus smaller settlements surrounding the capital. And what's really interesting is that each small town was actually designed to mimic almost exactly the layout of the capital. 
The consistency is remarkable, said study leader Robert Roswig, an archaeologist at SUNY Albany. This is a tremendous amount of coordination within the kingdom. Using LIDAR, an initial search of just 20 square miles discovered nine settlements. When expanded to a search area around the size of Chicago, the researchers were able to identify and document 41 settlements within 13 miles of the capital. Now, the towns did vary in size, with the three largest being situated along the perimeter of the kingdom, most likely as defensive strongholds against rival kingdoms. Carvings found at Izapa have indicated that warfare was probably fairly common. Um, they are basically, uh, Izapa would have been kind of a Maya-style kingdom. Now, each city is laid out with the east-west axis aligned with the sunrise during winter solstice and the north-south axis pointing just east of north towards the Takano volcano. Now, they had reason to consider the volcano a focal point uh, because it must have been a really important and, um, you know, it was kind of the center of their uh, kingdom. And unfortunately, uh, it eventually erupted and that led to the downfall of their kingdom, unfortunately. So in most towns, the northern part included a pyramid on top of a platform that would have served as a ritual and ceremonial center. To the south were plazas uh, formed by other mounds. And so basically the idea was that a visitor standing in the center of any of the towns would see roughly the same view. A pyramid to the north framed by the volcanoes of the Sierra Madres in the background. Now in the three largest satellite cities, at least one ball court was present, and they each featured conical mounds associated in Maya complexes with astronomical observation. And so uh, the fact that this structure, the fact that this structure was replicated at the lower order centers, which are not that far apart, meant that there was this sense of polity in the Izapa kingdom. And being a member of this entailed some specific ritual activities that would have happened periodically, Roswig explained. And so the researchers hope to have a future project focus on a settlement where uh, magnometer magnetometer and ground penetrating radar surveys have already suggested the presence of large stone sculptures. So that is really interesting and exciting. So basically there was this city and then it was surrounded by these kinds of suburbs uh, that were all kind of cookie cutter uh, re replicas of the larger city. And so, yeah, it's really interesting. And um, yeah, so moving southward, archaeology professors Catherine Perlez from the Université Paris in Nanterre and, and Lertaru Nunez from the Universidad Católica del Norte in Chile uh, have reported on two sites approximately half a mile from each other, which have been identified as ceremonial centers within the Atacama Desert. Now, people living in this harsh environment would have congregated in what researchers refer to as echo refuge, uh, refuges, places where there is enough water, animal, and plant life to support a population. Now, the more impressive of these two sites flourished between 1200 
and 500 BCE. And so excavations at the site in 2015 found massive stone monuments, infant burials, and offerings of gold and other precious materials from the Amazonian and Pacific regions. Now, 28 infant burials were found, with some having impressive gray goods, such as gold pendants, a gold plaque, and a gold-plated wooden vulture head with inlaid green malachite eyes and crest. And so uh, these would have, that would have dated back to between 690 BCE and 540 BCE. Numerous mortars and grinding slabs attest to the intense preparation of pigments, foodstuffs, and beverages, as well as hallucinogens made from the seeds of sebel and maize, both imported from the lowlands of northeast Argentina, Perlez and Nunez wrote. Now, the second site was last excavated in 1985, and so the pair re-examined the evidence found there. And so what they have found suggests that the site would have actually been, again, a ceremonial center rather than a domestic center as previously interpreted. And so they came to this conclusion because the site also featured abundant mortars and grinding stones with red pigments associated with ceremonial rites and not really any kind of suggestion that people were actually living there. Now, of course, because these are prehistoric people, they didn't have uh, written language. We unfortunately don't know what kind of ceremonies might have taken place in these centers, um, but it does show that there was a really complex and rich culture thriving here in what is one of the harshest des desert landscapes in the world. And so the Atacama is like really well known for basically being insanely harsh. Um, and in fact, there is a part of the Atacama desert that uh, NASA uses to basically uh, train their vehicles and potentially their astronauts for Mars. <laughs> so uh, it's one of the driest places on Earth, and it's pretty crazy. Uh, there are also some uh, large telescopes in the Atacama Desert, because basically there's not a whole else, lot else there. So, uh, you know, light pollution is reduced and uh, uh, all of the other kinds of things. Uh, air pollution is reduced. And so, yeah, and it's, of course, higher up. So when you're the higher, the more atmosphere you can sort of slice off by being above it, the better your telescope is going to be as well. And so, yeah. It is really interesting that they were able to actually continue to live in such a harsh land. And speaking of living in an unexpected landscape, researchers have recently described the probable or origin of the inaccessible island rail. <laughs> now, that is the actual name of the bird. Now, they live on an island basically half the size of Manhattan in the center of the uh, sort of southern Atlantic Ocean, uh, sort of midway between South America and Africa. And so 6,000 of these small flightless birds thrive in what is really honestly one of the most remote places on Earth. And in fact, you know, that's why it's called literally Inaccessible Island. 
It's quite spectacular that the world's smallest living flightless birds ended up in one of the most remote places ever. Study author Martin uh, Sturvander of the University of Oregon. Uh, he is a where he's a postdoctoral researcher. It seems the birds arrived on the island, and since they are fa- since they face little threat from predators, there wasn't much point of flying. Now, the birds were first described in the 1920s, and at the time, noticing that they had not populated either of two nearby islands less than 20 miles away, uh, it was actually considered plausible that they had walked to the island via a sunken land bridge. Now, this was actually before the theory of plate tectonics, so people didn't really understand uh, exactly what was going on with the uh, sort of land parts versus the ocean, and they didn't realize that there wouldn't just be basically land everywhere just below the ocean necessarily. And so at the time, they were even placed in their own genus, Atlantisia. (laughs) So yeah, uh, definitely were considered, you know, pretty special. And it's really kind of crazy how they managed to make it out there. Now, more recently, researchers had suggested that they evolved from rails in Africa. Um, The island is slightly closer to Africa than South America, I believe, Um, which, of course, is funny because it turns out, however, that with access to DNA sequencing, the new study was able to actually show that they most likely evolved from members of the genus Lateralis, which include South American birds such as the dot-winged crake, the Galapagos crake, and the black rail, which looks rather similar to the inaccessible island rail. Now, rails are apparently quite well known for setting out into the unknown and settling uh, basically new lands. Uh, 53 existing or recently extinct species live exclusively on islands, uh, with 32 of these species losing all or some of their ability to fly. When the rail arrived at an accessible island, they had all their food from walking around and there was nothing to to escape from. There's not much need for flying, said Sturvander. Now, their only other predators, or their only predators, are another bird species on the island that occasionally eats eggs, and of course, the odd seabird. Now, the data set on the birds does remain incomplete, according to the researchers, so they can't say for certain whether or not the birds belong to a separate genus or not. Um, But they basically are just really cute and uh, very remote. And it turns out that another mystery, of course, is why they never did settle those other two islands. So they still haven't managed to make it to those other two islands, which are very close uh, in relative terms. Um, But, you know, the researchers suggest that, you know, maybe at one point they did try to go there and it just wasn't successful. Uh, the colony didn't make it or something like that, that, you know, it could really be a lot of uh, reasons for why it wouldn't have been successful to move to one of the other islands. Now, of course, 
even though this is called Inaccessible Island, as we know in this day and age, really nothing is inaccessible. Uh, And in fact, you know, we know that they were first described in the 20s. And so we need to remember that animals on islands like this are actually even more susceptible to population collapses, uh, especially if any kind of predator is introduced. And so uh, hopefully these little cute birdies will be able to continue to live a happy and healthy life on their remote island without being uh, disturbed. And so um, I was reading again about um, some of the ideas that New Zealand has been working on to deal with their population issues when it comes to basically introduced predators because uh, New Zealand was originally a land full of flightless birds and then uh, Western people showed up, Europeans showed up with dogs and cats and stoats and all sorts of things, rats. And then it was a really bad time uh, for the native uh, birds, and they are still continuing to this day to deal with that. Um, You know, basically every day they lose uh, kiwis, for instance, to predation from um, what are basically essentially uh, invasive species. But um, yeah, anyways, (laughs) don't want to talk about that too much because it's There's not really a good solution at the moment. Um, Actually, let's take a break and do some uh, promos and PSAs, and then we will come back and we will have one more bird story before moving on to other things. So hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vitalsigns. 
Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at thatsnotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Okay, so we are back. And like I said, we are going to continue to talk about birds for a while. And so, yeah, it turns out that cockatoos are here to challenge crows for the crown of cleverest crafter. And so the discovery was actually made by accident. Uh, there was a cockatoo from a species that was not previously known to use tools. And uh, basically, one day that cockatoo decided to build a tool to reach food that had fallen out of his cage. One day, one of these birds built a tool to rake food into his cage that had fallen out, explained study author Alice Ausberg from the Medical University of Vienna in Austria. And so because of this, uh, she decided to actually do a uh, experimental study on this uh, phenomenon and see if it was just this one really smart cockatoo or if it was something that uh, these other cockatoos could be uh, conjoled into uh, doing. And so the study took six captive cockatoos who had previously been exposed to tool use, though not in the manner required for the experiment. The birds were shown a transparent box with food on a platform sticking out of a slanted plane. The food could be placed at various intervals, and uh, there was also a large or small circular opening in one of the box panels. And the box also then had a slot in the bottom in order for basically uh, to sort of poke a tool into the circular opening and scrape off the 
uh, food so that it would slide down the slope and out uh, through that slot in the bottom of the box. And so basically, that's what they would have to reason out, how to create a tool that they could use to rake the food off of the uh, platform and be able to get at it. Now, all of the birds had previously been trained to cut strips of cardboard using their beaks. Now, the six Goffins cockatoos, Kiwi, Conrad, Pippin, Doolittle, Figaro, and Feeny, <laughs> were introduced to the apparatus and then attempted to rake food when it was placed at 4 and 16 centimeters away. The birds were actually able to fashion longer tools to get at the food farther away, and they actually were able to toss out tools that appeared too small from uh, for that distance without even trying them. Uh, so they didn't need trial and error. They were able to look at a piece of cardboard and say, nope, that's never going to make it. Um, now, they did have one limitation. Most weren't able to create tools thin enough to use the smaller hole, though apparently Feeny did manage it. Now, it's unclear whether this was a limit in cognition or simply that it's uh, too hard for birds. Basically, with their limited dexterity, they've only got their sort of claws and their beak to create thin strips or strips thin enough to actually go through there and be uh, strong enough to actually do anything. It is very exciting to see that a bird species that does not use tools habitually in the wild can not only construct and invent tools flexibly in an experimental situation, but that it very precisely creates that tool according to the requirements of the task, i.e. adjusting its length and avoiding unnecessary effort, noted August von Bayern, research group leader at the uh, Max Planck Institute for Ornithology. This may be taken as a further indication that these birds might be relying on some form of mental representation of the tool. And so this is a big thing uh, in these sort of uh, experiments with birds is we are trying to figure out exactly what they're thinking when they're creating these tools and whether or not they're actually able to form pictures in their head the way that, you know, humans would of uh, what this tool is and how it's going to work. So while two, while crows are technically still winning uh, because it's not quite as impressive as being able to actually put two pieces of different materials together in order to make a new tool. It's still pretty amazing that these birds were able to use tools uh, when they had not been observed using tools in the wild and also, uh, you know, putting the pieces together. So even though they've been a using tools, other tools before, even though they've been taught how to cut up cardboard, there's still that cognitive leap that taking this piece of cardboard and cutting it up in the way that researchers have taught you to do before is how you create this tool in order to do the thing that you're trying to do. That's a big cognitive leap. And it's kind of crazy that birds with presumably really small brains, even though they're pretty big for the ratio of their bodies, it's still really, really amazing. But of course, you know, they're dinosaurs. Uh, so <laughs> uh, they are definitely uh, on top when it comes to evolution, because they have just been uh, around for a very long time. And so yeah, 
uh, and which of course leads into the next story. <laughs> um, and so a new study suggests that the coloring in bird eggs originated in dinosaurs rather than evolving in modern birds. Now, in order to create the color variation we see in modern birds' eggs, only two different pigments are employed, blue-green biliverdin and red-brown protoperferin 9. Protoperferin 9. (laughs) And so uh, Yasmina Wiseman, a paleontologist in the Department of Geology and Geophysics at Yale University and her colleagues from the American Museum of Natural History and the University of Bonn in Germany, analyzed 18 fossil dinosaur eggshell samples from around the world using non-destructive laser microscopy. And uh, basically, they were searching for evidence of those two eggshell pigments. And they found those pigments in eggshells belonging to Eumanoraptorin. And so that is a dinosaur class that includes small carnivorous dinosaurs like velociraptors. Uh, So remember, velociraptors were much closer to the size of turkeys. In reality, uh, what you see in Jurassic Park is actually uh, more close to Utah raptors. But anyways, um, this completely changes our understanding of how egg color evolved, said Weissman. For two centuries, ornithologists assumed that egg color appeared in modern birds' eggs multiple times independently. But of course, as we've seen in many cases re- recently, new forms of scientific technology can help us to reevaluate our previous understandings of these sorts of uh, situations. And so the uh, paper notes that we infer that egg color co-evolved with open nesting habitats in dinosaurs. Once dinosaurs started to build open nests, exposure of the eggs to visually hunting predators and even nesting parasites favored the evolution of camouflage egg colors and individually recognizable patterns of spots and speckles. So we can add this to the list of traits along with feathers and wishbones that actually evolved in non-avian dinosaurs and were passed down to modern birds. Okay, so let's actually swing back around now to South America and talk about research which probes how the people of the high Andes have been able to adapt to uh, the lack of oxygen Uh, and scarcity of food that is commonplace in such high altitudes. And so it turns out that the people of the Andes have developed mutations that affect changes to their heart muscles and their ability to digest starches more easily. So John Lindo, a population geneticist at Emory University in Atlanta, sequenced seven genomes from people who lived near Lake Titicaca in the Peruvian Andes between 6,800 and 1,800 years ago. His team then compared this ancient DNA to two modern populations, the Aymara of Bolivia and the Joliche Penuiche, who lived on the lowland coast of southern Chile. Now, they found that the people who lived in the Andes have developed different adaptations from those who live in the Himalayas. They found adaptations in a gene called DST, which is related to cardiovascular health and heart muscle development. Uh, 
they found even stronger selection pressures in genes related to starch digestion. The research su- researchers suggest that because starchy potatoes quickly became a staple food for these ancient Andean peoples, adaptations to make it a more efficient source of energy are unsurprising. By comparing the DNA differences between the lowland and highland groups, Lindo's team found that they most likely separated around 8,750 years ago, which is a date that is supported by archaeological evidence. Now, some geneticists, however, have pointed out that the people from southern Chile are not a proper control group for comparison. And Lindo actually agreed that populations from coastal Peru or northern Chile would have been better. However, data about them is unfortunately unavailable. The team also found uh, what I consider to be a pretty shocking signature of uh, European colonization and contact in those DNA samples. They found that the population of the Huichle uh, Penoeche people fell by 97% after contact, while the people in the highlands population fell by only 27%. Uh, And so interestingly, they found an immune receptor in the modern Highlander's genome, which responds to smallpox vaccines. And of course, this is a clear indication that this population descends from people who were affected by smallpox epidemics in the Andes following the arrival of the European colonizers. So that is really interesting that they're able to find, you know, these very clear signatures in the DNA. Now, let's move on to a uh, medical mystery that you probably actually never knew was a mystery. So it turns out that humans should actually faint every time that they stand up. (laughs) It turns out that standing causes a sudden drop in in blood pressure that should mean that your brain basically suddenly loses blood supply. However, special neurons called baroreceptors are activated to compensate for this change, and researchers are just now learning how they're able to produce this effect. A team from the Scripps Research Institute have pinpointed two proteins that sense blood pressure and control the baroreceptor response. These receptors signal to to the heart to increase the blood pressure so that there is an immediate compensation as you rise and begin to move. Our motivation for this study was rooted in basic science, yet these findings could have major translational implications by improving our understanding of human health, said microbiologist Ardem Padaputanian from the Scripps Research Institute. And so the two proteins, PISO-1 and PISO-2, were discovered by the group several years ago. It actually turns out that they're quite busy playing various jobs around the body. Now, the researchers found this time uh, that they were able to pinpoint that they are affecting the um, receptors by doing studies in mice. And so they tested mice that were denied piezoproteins. And so those mice showed greater risk of hypertension and more variability in their blood pressure. When the piezoproteins were then introduced to the mice, Blood pressure and heart rates increased, suggesting that the baroreceptors were now able to function properly. Of course, as with most studies of this kind, it's not proof positive, but it's highly suggestive and is supported by other research on humans with malfunctioning baroreceptors. 
And again, knowing more about how this system works could lead to breakthroughs in the treatment of blood pressure-related diseases. Knowing the identity of the sensors for blood pressure control gives us an idea of how to develop better therapies to treat patients who suffer from drug-resistant hypertension or any other problems with blood pressure control, said one of the team, Kara Marshall. So that is pretty cool. Okay, so let us move on now to talk about what's actually a little bit of hopeful news. And so, of course, climate change is the most pressing issue in the environment in the last decade. Um, It is still very, 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 very important to think about and talk about and do things about. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't seem to be going in that direction right now. But let's talk about something that is actually about the environment and is actually a success story for a minute. Um, So uh, you probably uh, remember, if you're old enough, um, that is, that before we started talking about climate change in earnest, the uh, environmental uh, disaster that we were most aware of was the hole in the ozone layer. And so a new United Nations summary of the state of the ozone layer suggests that we're actually on track to restore this layer of the stratosphere to 1980s levels by the second half of the century. And so uh, the Montreal Protocol, which is the uh, treaty that was made for uh, tackling this problem, was set into force in 1989. And of course, it was a milestone in environmental protection that led to the phasing out of chemicals that degrade ozone. Uh, You will still see on bottles uh, that there's usually a little uh, sticker or, you know, a little um, tag that says uh, CFC free. And so the latest report suggests that the hole that once ominously covered uh, or hovered over Antarctica has thickened. And outside of that region, stratospheric ozone has increased between 1% and 3% per decade since 2000. This means that the northern latitudes, uh, or the mid-latitudes of the northern hemisphere, will recover sometime in the mid-2030s, while the south pole hole will be more or less healed by the 2060s. Now, of course, we can't rest on our laurels. Constant monitoring is required, as there have been occasional bouts of rogue production. In fact, we've actually detected that eastern China is emitting significant amounts of the substance carbon tetrachloride, uh, though the cause of the emissions is as yet undetermined. It could be deliberate flaunting of the ban, or the chemical could be the byproduct of another chemical process. But it is a good milestone to hold onto as we continue to worry about whether or not we'll ever be able to truly come together and halt anthropogenic uh, climate change. So, you know, there is still hope, uh, even though it might not seem that way some days. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So let us talk for a second now about a cool new discovery in the uh, Grand Canyon. And so a fossil trackway 
uh, has been found on the Bright Angel Trail in the Grand Canyon National Park, and it is pretty exciting. A recent rock fell along the Bright Angel Trail produced two blocks of fine-grained quartz arnite from the Manakacha Formation, explains University of Nevada Professor Stephen Rowland and San Diego State University's Dr. Mario Caputo. Caputo. <laughs> the two blocks display parts and counterpart surfaces containing a conspicuous vertebrae trackway consisting of 28 tracks preserved as impressions on one block and natural casts on the opposite block. The trackway extends about 3.3 feet across the width of the fallen blocks. And so basically this is a, uh, trackway. So like, uh, you know, the dinosaur footprints, this is basically the equivalent of that. And so, but this is actually um, from an earlier time. So the Bright Angel Trail trackway dates from the Carboniferous period. And that is a time period when um, the massive supercontinent uh, Pangea would have been, uh, it would have been just a giant slab of land <laughs> surrounded by water um, on the planet. And so it's actually the oldest trackway ever discovered in the Grand Canyon. And uh, it was actually really surprising. They weren't expecting that you would find a trackway in that particular uh, rock formation. And it turns out that it's actually among the earliest reptile tracks on Earth. And so it's, it was actually kind of weird at first. People didn't really get what was going on. Uh, so uh, they said, our first impression was that it looked very bizarre because of the sideways motion. It appeared that two animals were walking side by side, but you wouldn't expect two lizard-like animals to be walking side by side. It didn't make any sense. Then I made detailed drawings and began hypothesizing about the peculiar line dancing gait left behind by the creature. One reason I proposed is that the animal was walking in a very strong wind and the wind was blowing it sideways. Another possibility is that the slope was too steep and the animal sidestepped as it climbed the sand dune, or the animal was fighting with another creature or engaged in a mating ritual. So of course, it's sort of, it could have been many things. <laughs> it's always great to have those sorts of speculations where you're like, hmm. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, you know, and of course, turns out that the uh, footprints could even belong to a reptile species that we haven't yet discovered any remains of. So it's pretty interesting when you just sort of have this thing kind of literally fall into your lap and uh, now they have to try and figure out what's going on with it. All right. So finally tonight, we are going to take a minute to uh, listen to a uh, really interesting bit of uh, quote-unquote music. It's not actually music, um, but it is a sonification of data, which uh, I have been uh, talking recently about this new field of sonification of data. Um, it's really cool. And so this is a sonified uh, snippet of data from a sunrise on Mars. Now, the team of researchers created a musical depiction of a Martian sunrise recorded by NASA's Mars rover Opportunity. 
So Dr. Domenico Venenanza of Anglia Ruskin University and Dr. Genevieve Williams from the University of Exeter created the piece by scanning a picture left to right, pixel by pixel, and translating the data from the brightness and color information, and then combining those with the terrain elevation. And so they then used algorithms to assign each element a specific pitch and melody. So let us listen. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that was a, the 5,000th sunrise, in fact, uh, recorded by Curiosity on Mars, or sorry, Opportunity. And so uh, the quiet, slow harmonies are representative of the dark background, with the brighter, high-pitched sounds uh, towards the middle representing the sun's bright disk. We are absolutely thrilled about presenting this work uh, about such a fascinating planet, Dr. Vikinanza said. Image sonification is a really flexible technique to explore science, and it can be used in several domains, from studying certain characteristics of planet surfaces and atmospheres, to analyzing weather changes or detecting volcanic eruptions. In health science, it can provide scientists with new methods to analyze the occurrence of certain shapes and colors, which is particularly useful in image diagnostics. All right, so that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit 
www.planetside.pro, and thank you for listening.